This is the show. This is the party. Nobody chose their mortal body. The skin we're in. The flag we're under. We're blending in to one another. Hey, folks. What's up? How are you doing? Are you taking care of yourself? Keeping track of what makes you happy? Are you keeping track of and supporting the things that make the people that make you happy, happy? This is the Strange Tonic Podcast. Thank you for listening to it. The music that we are also always excited to use comes from our friends at Pan Astral. This is their single, All of the Color. Please support them. Find them wherever you get digital music. They've got digital concerts, as where a, a lot of the artists that you hopefully love and support in times of COVID have similar options. So check those out. Support Pan Astral, support your local artists, support your local music, support your local stores, because COVID isn't going anywhere. If you have delivery drivers like we do here in Seattle, tip them the best as you can. Also, if you can find ways to support, I know Uber Eats did this at one point, just give a little bit of extra to the businesses that you're getting your delivery from. Restaurants in particular do that. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Penn Astral. Thank you to Michelle. Thank you for the fun, awesome graphic that we get to use each and every week. Each and every article or blog, for that matter, if you will. Thank you to my wife for listening to me some <laughs> uh, listening to me do 500 of these terrible takes and get mad and curse at each one of them and just take care of yourself be well and just yeah thank you Which, I think, apart from this being, you know, our first attempt at this kind of topic slash new format-ish thing, mm -hmm. from the, I listened to three different podcasts and got maybe about four hours into that audiobook that I, the Chernow book you've been reading. Oh, yeah. Okay. And two of the podcasts, the host mentioned how they still don't really know what to think of Washington. And I'm kind of in the same boat where it's, is that because you know he just was the first president or was because he was just kind of unique when it comes to what we think of as politicians? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And uh, that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways, just because he was the first president, but he was also considered the first, the first savior of the United States. Mm -hmm. Like, He's so revered without without him managing to 
lose almost every battle but still win the Revolutionary War, yeah. the country wouldn't have been created without him. So he really does hold, he really is a special placeholder in a lot of ways, like as a, I guess as a politician, but um, I kind of thought like, if we're talking about two of the founding fathers, two of the big ones, mm-hmm. GW, the first GW, yeah, and uh, and Thomas Jefferson, like thinking about like who they were as people, they were pretty close in age, but they come from very different backgrounds, even though they were Virginia planters and slaveholders, landowners, all that stuff. Yeah, all of that stuff. So. Um, I don't know if we want to try to talk about them like that, like as a comparison, or... I think so, because, um, oh, and I didn't realize this until, I think it was the Washington Post podcast I listened to, that um, Washington actually dyed his hair white to look older at a certain point. (laughs) Yeah, he never wore wigs. He used things to have that white wig look without actually wearing wigs. Yeah. And this was the style at the time. <laughs> I mean, I guess, because I, mean, I suppose when people don't live as long, like, being older is sometimes maybe a uh, sign of achievement. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I've been around this long and not died, so I've got <laughs> that going for me. Right. I don't. I honestly don't know the history behind the revered white wig, but you still see it in, in British courts and stuff today, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> don't they even do it in like uh, former British colonies as well? It's like, why are you guys still doing this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The wigs, the wigs. But um, I don't know. I think that's kind of a, actually an interesting point talking about that that hair, <laughs> the perception <laughs> of it, anyways. Because when George Washington, the the world he was born into. The, what would become the United States, the, the British colonies there, they just thought of themselves as just British. Mm-hmm. Like, just a total total extension in a different place. Yeah, just out there in the frontier. Just out there in the frontier. You know, uh, fighting natives and trying to expand when they weren't really allowed to. And In Washington's case, uh, getting paid to find the best spots of land and then buying them on the cheap. Right, exactly. He was a very successful surveyor. Yep. And that's that. Well, and I mean, just even starting with that, like George Washington wasn't exactly born into wealth and privilege. No. Um, and his mother was a piece of work. How he ever survived his childhood? His mother I, was never nice to him. I don't think I got to that part in Chernow's book. Maybe I just missed it. Yeah, yeah. Like his entire life, he's always giving her money, and she talks about what a worthless uh, son he is. She was never proud of him for his military service or becoming the first president. All she ever did was complain about how he abandoned her and never took care of her. So she was quite the narcissist. Um, and then unfortunately for him, like all of his older brothers and his father, they all died when they were very young. And mm-hmm. somehow he's the only Washington to really live on to an old age, even though he was younger than 70 when he died. And didn't he get his first uh, slaves at the age of 10 when his father passed away? Exactly. Yeah, he inherited his first group of slaves um, when his father passed away. And that's kind of how he became part of the privileged gentry in Virginia was all the all the dudes in his family around him kept dying off and he just kind of kept inheriting stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and people. That's, and people. Also people. Um, 
yeah so he and he always studied studied books on etiquette and what it meant to be a gentleman in british society he so desperately tried to um you know his 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 performance around other people was so stoic but it was always because he was so cautious about mm -hmm. how he behaved himself always uh, careful with his words and um he truly, you know, he was successful as a surveyor, but he truly, truly wanted a commission in the British military. But with him not being of the gentry and not being born in Great Britain, there was no way in hell the British government was ever going to give him a title. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even though he he kind of started the French and Indian War yep. <laughs> out there in the Pennsylvania wilderness and uh, the Fort Necessity and shit went really bad and the French thought he murdered somebody and it started the Seven Years' War. <laughs> I liked the part in Chernow's book where they're talking about, I can't remember the French officer's name, but where Washington, like, the guy was not amiable or affable towards Washington at all, but he right. respected how straightforward and, like, the manners, because as you said, etiquette was key. And mm -hmm. so he really only got mad when he found out that, oh... This guy who actually wasn't on the level and paid his guides to go home. And yeah, <laughs> that just kind of seemed to be a thing throughout his life was, um, you, you know, we can be bitter enemies, but as long as we're, you know, rather respectful and professional okay. about it, it's fine. As long as we do all these horrible things in a very polite, yes. controlled manner, it's fine. Yes, yeah, so let's it's murder fine. each other, but let's make sure that I give you the best food I have at my house when you're here. <laughs> exactly. He showed me very kind hospitality after <laughs> slaughtering all of my men. Yeah. So he, he so wanted to be part of this uh, elite class that he found himself kind of fighting with and against mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and so much of his wealth came from his uh, marriage to Martha Custis. That's also interesting. So a lot of his slaves were not technically his, mm -hmm. and he had to do a lot of uh, tippy-toe dancing to try and protect his own wealth by not selling her slaves. Otherwise, he'd have to pay her estate back. It was, like, yeah. ridiculously complicated they how all of this went. They mentioned that on third podcast I listened to, which was uh, Schmanner's. And that one where they dedicated all to the Washington's love of etiquette. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize this. So he, you know, at the time of his death, had you know, worked to free all the slaves he owned. However, one of the hardest, as you said, was the ones that were, what, essentially a dowry? Yes, it was a dowry. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. so those, like, and this is what I think of as, was interesting learning that about Washington. And, you know, the part where, he asked a lot of questions to people around him because he did not think he was necessarily smart enough to be president. Right. And so it's, I guess, not, I don't say ironic, but all these people that he was fighting against, like Jefferson, who had were from a more elite background and also had more of an education, he mm -hmm. was like, well, I do need to listen to what they have to say, even if I think that they're oftentimes driven by their own egos mm -hmm. and like personal imaginations as opposed to you know actually wanting to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, too, if some of that translated to, because I think he he at least was, would you say, possibly agreeable to the position that owning slaves was a bad look. And that yes. was kind of why he wanted to stop doing it. But he also then lacked the legal acumen to realize, how in the heck do I 
free these ones that are part of the, the you know the wedding dowry whatever it's called right yeah i i would agree with that because it does seem like at least from my what i've learned and and you know going from secondhand information here from other historians is in a lot of his private papers he he was more than willing to state slavery is wrong we shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. um but then he also had a very practical stance on it like how do i get rid of these slaves without destroying my entire family fortune um but he would but also on the flip side slavery is not very economically um it doesn't make a lot of economic sense mm-hmm. in long in the long term so it's like he was he he knew that slavery as part of the country you know coming into development that it was a moral problem and that it should be dealt with but i think he suggested like slow emancipation um and or, he did have, go ahead as you said in our uh pre-recorded conversation um maybe treat them treat them well be a man of etiquette even to your slaves and that, then he was as you said surprised when his cook ran away like hmm, right. what? that was so nice to my cook yes. me. but it, 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 so it, it's almost like for for washington the idea of slavery was impractical but at the same time he, he you're right he didn't really have the acumen to get to to make that change and then when he was president in his second term um the capital had been moved to philadelphia which was in pennsylvania which was a free state Mm -hmm. and the law at the time was that any slave living within pennsylvania for six months or longer was automatically considered a free person and so one of the historians i read called it musical slaves because they would have to secretly send new slaves back and forth from Mount Vernon up to Philadelphia to try and get around this law. Um, so his, his servants that he considered property, but also like an investment, mm-hmm. he, he, he wanted to still get the benefits from that investment. If yeah. that makes sense. It does. Yeah, this, this is all, this is all a capitalist system based on slavery. And mm-hmm. he, you know, he, he didn't know how to get around it in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, I do think that, not to besmirch his intellect, but I do think a lot of that was just, he was not, not as, what would you say, incandescently brilliant as, say, a mm-hmm. Jefferson. But right. Jefferson, or, a, or a Hamilton, for that true, matter. True. Um, he really relied on Hamilton. He got, he considered himself so much lesser because he didn't have this college education that a lot of the other founding fathers did have. Um, a lot of them were lawyers, uh, like Hamilton, he went to King's College, which is now Columbia University, um, and Thomas Jefferson completed his law degree at William and Mary, and George Washington, he got some education at William and Mary, but it was all in um, the surveying realm. Mm-hmm. He never considered himself to be super brilliant, and so he was a very intelligent person, obviously, but he relied on those around him, and a lot of the guys around him were like, nah, slavery's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, uh, I think, it's your point, he was much more of, say, like, practical, in, or for those of you in the more, like, business kind of world, uh, oops, sorry, I had the window cracked in here so that you just heard a call. Oh, I was wondering what that sound was. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he was much more skilled at operational kind of tasks, such as, yeah, surveying, and I didn't realize this at all. I don't think I'd ever heard of it until listening to, I think it was that Washington Post podcast, that he made the majority of his wealth at one point 
as a distiller. And I missed that part. That's really interesting. They said that there was a, there's not just at the time, but like throughout history, there's been a conscious effort to kind of avoid talking about that. Oh, shocking. We, you know, <laughs> it wasn't illegal or anything. It's just, no. yeah, we, we want to think about like how, how do you make his money? Um, being a great general and president and uh, being able to throw. Oh, the Schmanners podcast, too, said that there's a myth that he threw a silver dollar across the Potomac. And oh, that's really ridiculous, yeah. They said that may have been based <laughs> off of a tale that one of his nephews possibly... No, sorry, it was a step-grandchild. Mm-hmm, yeah. said that he threw a silver platter across a much narrower river. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, see... And these these characters, these figures that we're talking about, they're so shrouded in mythology that was developed in the 19th century. <laughs> like, the facts about them are relatively new to us in a lot of ways because so much of it was creating the mythology of nationalism and, you know, this, you know, this, uh, this great epic, like, founding story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the cherry tree, and I cannot tell a lie, all that crap. Like, you know, George Washington was a pretty stand-up guy, but so much of what we talk about around him is just completely made-up shit <laughs> by people who wanted to to uh, glorify our, our history, which was so short. And, uh, you know, there's some really good stories that came out of it, but a lot of it's just not true. What do you mean he's not 10 feet tall or 10 stories tall and made of radiation? <laughs> That's um, right. Sorry, we gotta include a link to the YouTube video, of George Washington <laughs> cartoon video that we watched over and over ten years ago. <laughs> he made love like an eagle falling out of the sky. <laughs> That's right. Killed the sensei in a duel, and he never said why. Uh, I was just thinking <laughs> about that though. Said children, but not the British children. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would say, having read what we've read in the podcast, I think he would. Although he would do it begrudgingly, he would still probably offer them steaks, but yes. uh, he would, you know, this was what a, a man of honor does, it's, it, as etiquette uh, dictates. Yeah. That's an interesting point, though, To back to our whole Jefferson-Washington dichotomy. The only real kind of mythology I can think of as far as Jefferson was that he was just so bright. There's the whole, uh, what's that... I don't know who originally said it, but there's the idea that something like the smartest person in the room was when Jefferson dined in the Oval Office by himself. Oh. <laughs> he was just that bright. But you don't hear any stories of yeah, like physical you know, brilliance or you know attributes. Um, yes, Washington, what, like, got through, as you said, the uh, French and Indian War rather unscathed physically he lost a lot of battles and uh had some issues there Uh, but but with that like the mythologizing of his military service i mean there were times where he'd be in battle with his men and everybody's dropping dead around him he'll have two or three horses shot out from Mm -hmm. him he would go home and find bullet holes in his cape but he never actually got shot and so it's like this amazing, this amazing myth, the savior who cannot be killed in battle, this this uh, stoic, strong, logistically very intelligent leader that could never be harmed. I mean, that's the kind of guy you want to follow into battle, right? Mm-hmm. And I um, would assume, <laughs> you know, to another uh, 
I would say heavily mythologized American revolutionary figure. Washington took a great deal of pride in mentoring people. And so Mm -hmm. he valued and trusted Benedict Arnold so much that he gave him the important (laughs) post of, uh, oh no, my brain just not working tonight. Of, uh, well, no, just uh, West Point. Because that was, to him, that was such a strategically important military base that he spent his most gifted and trusted protege up there. So he was Mm -hmm. extremely mortified when he found out, what? This guy's not a man of integrity? Hmm. I am, I have been betrayed. He was mortified. Yes. (laughs) Right. He was mortified publicly, but he was also, like, personally really, Mm -hmm. really hurt by it. Because he did, he, he didn't have a whole lot of confidants in his life and the men that he entrusted with with a lot of important roles during the war um you know these these were guys that were loyal to him till their deaths and benedict arnold was one of the exceptions Mm -hmm. and uh yeah he was personally really devastated and really hurt by it i feel like also with washington you have another case of not just his personality here but i think there's been particularly in the civil war where there was a lot of generals who were really good at, like you talked about, logistics and operations. Mm-hmm. I think Washington was one of those people who also recognized he wasn't the best actual like military tactician when it came to the battlefield. And mm-hmm. he thought Arnold, well, Arnold actually was. He just got into some other stuff, too. Mm-hmm. So I think that bothered him, too. He may have viewed Arnold as possibly better than himself. Mm-hmm. And when this happened, whoa. I'm not, yeah. I, he didn't just betray me, he betrayed what I thought of him, like my notion of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you're right, like traditionally he wasn't the most brilliant, but think about who they were fighting too, yes. the ridiculous British army, <laughs> <laughs> with their bright red jackets marching, marching in straight lines and stuff, and George Washington gets, you know, this new militia turnover, like, once mm-hmm. or twice a year. All of these people are just farmers. Nobody has uniforms. Nobody has food. You can't Every- tell them whether or not they're going to get paid. Like- yes, exactly. Like, so much of his correspondence during the war is just begging the Continental Congress, like, please figure out a way to get money and food for yep. us, please. please. Yes, say that their conscriptions have been continued, but the payments still haven't come for the last one. Right, right, yeah, and they did have to be pretty clever, like sneaking, sneaking around the British camps under the cover of darkness. Like, okay, how do we quietly move four thousand men and cannons? And they they yep. did it. They pulled it off a few times, and that's how they won the war, just by sheer survival. And uh, there will be some people listening to this podcast will say, and French support. Yes, yes, yes that was also important <laughs> yeah. to you. Yes. But holding out long enough was. Uh, because I have been someone in the past who has said, uh, the British didn't do shit. Um, uh, sorry, coin jar. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they did... Well, the British... Well, let's not get into that too much, because there's someone that comes to... They held out against a opponent with superior numbers, but mm-hmm. also who made several strategic blunders. Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's another... Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get into that's World a whole War other podcast, but <laughs> yeah. Well, and but I mean, in so many, rev- I, I you know, I've listened to a couple podcasts too, and one of the things with revolutions that end up being successful is who's the guy that you want to be in charge mm-hmm. of the country after he wins the war? It's going to be the general, 
Like, it, so George Washington becoming like this political savior and the first president really is just like, yeah, well, duh, you know. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, who else would people really want to turn to? He had, he had the respect of the most people who were in charge of the government at the time. Um, but I think, it, and this is my own analysis, I really don't think that he ever wanted to be a political person. Um, he, you know, because like there's this, uh, this story has been retold many times. And, and so I do believe that it is true that during the first Continental Congress, when they were trying to figure out who's going to run our military for this war, George Washington showed up every single day wearing his military uniform. Mm -hmm. He was literally the only person in the room that had military experience and he also dressed for the part you know he dressed yep. for the job he wanted but when it came time for the constitution to be written and realizing the article of confederation was just not working at all <laughs> does he want me to get in on the podcast too um i don't think so i think you're just barking stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> just barking it's fine George Washington had wanted nothing to do with it. Benjamin Franklin wrote him letters begging him to come and be part of the new government. And George Washington dreaded it. He really didn't want to be a political person. But in some ways, that's what made him such a well-respected political person. Right? Sure, yep. Because he, was, he, he always seemed to be doing what he thought was the right thing. He was morally wrong plenty of times. But he wasn't this lifelong politician who was interested in gaining power or holding power or maintaining power. That's part of why he is so mythologized is because twice he let power go. Mm -hmm. He stepped down after the war ended and then he only held two terms in office when he very well could have been president until he died, which is really what everybody wanted at the time yeah. because he was their hero. And, uh, yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of that, you know, just the, as you said, him not wanting to do what we think of as partisan politics today probably has a fair amount to do with his whole you know, desire for etiquette because you do Humility. what you say and you, yeah. you know, say what you do. And that's just not what, unfortunately, a lot of politicians are able to do. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean many people in a lot of positions they have to say one thing and do another or at least smile and do something else right and uh but i believe at least i think the analysis i've heard is that he did recognize enough that revolutions like post-revolutionary countries are in such a weak state that they mm -hmm. need someone to step forward and kind of calm things down mm -hmm. and that's what he represented as where a bunch of I don't want to say factions, but when you have different competing interests who are maybe mm -hmm. trying to move things in a different direction, and he's just like, all right, let's slow this down and just move forward and figure it out from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's almost like, and this may be not true in some ways, and this might just be my own conjecture, but everybody knew that the first president, once that role was kind of envisioned, mm -hmm. everybody knew it was going to be Washington, except for Washington. Everybody wanted it to be Washington, except for Washington. Yeah. And the whole role of the presidency and the executive branch was modeled after the fact that George Washington was the first one. So he was a uh, reliable, trustworthy, uh, 
independent kind of thinking person. <laughs> I was going to say, is this why we don't know how to analyze him <laughs> right now? Probably, probably, <laughs> probably. It's because the whole the whole concept of presidency was molded like, what are his character traits? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we want the executive to be like. And so when you don't have somebody like George Washington in that role, it's like, God, what a shit show. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, we don't want someone who's the chief diplomat, uh, chief military leader and someone who's kind of supposed to be generally magnanimous towards everybody. Yes. And yes. care no, more about an asshole yeah. who only for himself. <laughs> yeah, that's that is not what George Washington was. Yeah, this, and so yeah. <laughs> this general decorum that's supposed to flow through everything. What yes. is that? I don't know. I, well, and I feel like there's a, this uh, air of humility around George Washington mm-hmm. and I feel like there's been plenty of other presidents who have feigned Yes. Humility. But a lot of them really did have uh, egos to stroke. and That's an excellent um, point. The how do I appear Washington-esque while then throwing temper tantrums in the background? And that's not, <laughs> right. that's not shade at Trump, people, because there's nothing, nothing more below the surface there. He is what he is. Yes. That's other yes. presidents who want to seem nice and then are not nice people. Yes, yes, exactly. Hey, would you would you be willing to name an example or two, I guess? Um, maybe LBJ. Mhm. He more just had a temper. He wasn't like a terrible person to deal with. It's just he would lose his shit during meetings, and there's the whole. Uh, <laughs> speaking of things that Washington wouldn't do, he's famous for holding meetings in the bathroom where his subordinates have to stand around the stall he's in as he does his business. Yeah, that never um, would have happened. <laughs> well, no. Um, I, I guess, and, and, you know, you need to correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think the way Nixon presented himself oh, was a yeah. lot like that. Yeah. Like, it's about the people, it's about what's right, the silent majority, but really he was a maniacal, power-hungry mm-hmm. person behind the scenes the whole time. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, where he was horrible to people he dealt with directly, and then directed those people to be horrible to their underlings too. That, yep. Yeah. I guess yeah, I was that's... trying to think of someone who wasn't as abhorrent as Nixon. <laughs> um, as... He's an easy, he's an yeah. easy one. So True. Easy target, I guess. <laughs> trying to think who else. Because you'd think with how like easygoing he was that Reagan would have been that way, but I don't think Reagan was. He was very much hands off. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, I can think of a, of a different example of somebody who was maybe power hungry is the, the wrong word, but who did exude the strong man, but was still pretty successful was Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Like from a very young age, his pursuit into politics was just like, I'm going all the way to the top and nobody's going to stop me. And there were a couple of roadblocks where he's like, nah, it's not going to happen. No, I don't want to be the VP. And then, like, McKinley gets shot, and all of a sudden he's in charge now. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, he got what he wanted. Um, but That's a good he parallel. He wasn't necessarily, like, a bad guy doing that to get to the top. He still got to the top, but he was not a huge, like, he didn't have humility the way that George Washington did, I don't think. No, but he understood, like, that, like, the importance of building a legend around oneself. Uh, Absolutely, the way he handled the uh, the Rough Riders yep. in uh, in Cuba that was completely mythologized. Yeah, 
in the books oh. that he wrote about himself saving Cuba single-handedly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't all that tough as far as military wins go. That was, oof. We'll talk about that another day. <laughs> yeah, we'll hold on to that later. But again, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, that's a whole century after yep. Washington. To be completely um, influenced by a singular person, a sing- like who holds like, one office, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, George George Washington is kind of hard to analyze because he's he's the one who this whole concept is kind of molded around, and I don't I'm not sure there's really been anybody else who really fits into into that same mold. No, um, because just thinking the people that came immediately after him, I think Adams, who really thought he should be the first president, yeah, and Jefferson. But he knew he wouldn't win, which is the only reason why he was like, like yep. yeah, it should be George, you know. <laughs> but then thought he could really kind of be the power behind the throne, if you will, mm-hmm. by, <laughs> we, we talk about this, making fun of her, the, you know, being in charge of the Senate. But Adams really thought that he could kind of run the Senate and be more <laughs> of a influence as far as the legislature went. But just, I can't think of another one of Washington's contemporaries who was closer to him than was closer to, say, Adams, Jefferson, and kind of down the line. Mm -hmm. Because they all seemed fairly similar. And even up to, I think, oh, we'll get to this later, as we talked about, but uh, Jackson, I -hmm. think, tried to embody a lot of what he saw in Washington, but uh, whereas Washington tried, not tried, successfully managed to manage his temper and be Mm -hmm. very kind of even-handed, that was not Jackson's strong point at all. He had a temper, and it went wild, and he would try and make up for it later, but didn't usually work out very well for him. No, no. Yeah, and Jackson... He was, he's kind of interesting too, because he's, he wasn't old enough to fight in the Revolutionary mm-hmm. War, but his family was destroyed by the war. I can't remember the exact situation, but I think he was like held captive at the mm-hmm. time. He was like 11 years old or something crazy. He was super young. And so his, his belief uh, in uh, the importance of a new nation <laughs> yep. was instilled in him at a very young age. And so in some ways he's still kind of like, revived people's memory of those early founding fathers, but he definitely handled things in a very, very different way. He, to your point, tells a story of, as a young boy, standing up to a British officer Mm -hmm. and uh, in the process being struck with the blunt side of the officer's sword, which actually then knocked him out and left a scar on his forehead. Mm-hmm. I've seen a drawing of it before. It's uh, oh, have you? Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's. Hmm. I'm just trying to think too of like more ways to tie Jefferson to this because I just I feel like they're. Do you think they were that dissimilar of people, even though they're you know both Virginians and. Um. It both. seems like. Um. I I think Jefferson had a really a really special way with words. He was very good at writing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why he was 
tasked by Adams to write the Declaration of Independence, he really didn't contribute a whole lot of the ideas, um, no. but he wrote he wrote beautifully. And so I think Jefferson was a very poetically eloquent person, as opposed to Washington being a very like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, controlled. Uh, yeah, that's good. Because he, he himself was very eloquent in his writings, too, but he never wrote anything political. No. George Washington did not philosophize the way that Thomas Jefferson did. No, it was all very, as you said, practical and pragmatic, yeah. and everything served a purpose to just and get George, the message across as opposed to, like, selling the point. Yeah, and George Washington, he, he was willing to work in a way that Thomas Jefferson never had to. Like, he had to travel and do the surveying job and be mm-hmm. in the military and live live dirty. He got his hands dirty from, like, the, the grind of daily work. And it seems like Thomas Jefferson never really had to do that. No. Uh, not in the same ways. And he, he went to college because he wanted to, because he could afford to. Um, he loved philosophy. He, he was a thinker and a philosophizer. So I do think that they were very different people in a lot of ways. And also to that point... Um... I believe when Washington passed away, his estate was much more valuable than Jefferson's. Who... Yeah, Jefferson was terrible with money. He sure was. He did not have the pragmatism that Washington did. And no. that showed in his presidency, too. Like, um, the biggest example is the Embargo Act. When uh, yep. Napoleon and Great Britain kept stealing each other's ships, and sometimes American trading ships would get caught in there, and Thomas Jefferson was like, hey, stop that. Stop stealing our yeah, stuff. Yep. And they were like, no. And then George, and then I'm sorry, Jefferson was like, well, we're not going to trade with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and it like destroyed the American economy, which was barely coming out of the debt from the war fought 25 years earlier. So It sure did. Almost sunk his presidency, too. Almost did. Yeah, he still got two terms, though. Yep. But he was like massively in debt when he died. Mm-hmm. Like, equivalencies of like 10 million dollars or something today it oh was yeah like crazy money he yeah, had there's... lots of bottles of wine and he loved the french revolution and he loved philosophy and he was not good with money <laughs> nope but uh in a lot of ways his largesse of slaves served as a buffer of credit that mm-hmm. kind of kept him afloat as where with washington well he probably certainly enjoyed that as well he did have the means to free them without taking a massive hit to his wealth. As where, uh, I guess that is, I don't want to say it's a myth, but maybe one of the few things that Jefferson kind of, the softening blows for him when it comes to his history with slavery is Mm -hmm. that it's believed that him and, and I don't know why this is a good thing, um, Sally Hemings worked to free their children Mm-hmm. from his servitude. Right. Which when they were like adults or something, yeah. Yes. And you know, he, the mother of his slave children that he it's like he fathered like Well, and yeah, it, which is so which was so common back then. Um and so hor- horrible to think about in a lot of ways. Absolutely. It's kind of incomprehensible. Um, that there was a saying that like all the women of the South could recognize the faces of the white slave owners and the children on the plantations, except their own. 
they never wanted to think that maybe somebody on their plantation had that type of relationship with the female slaves, but they knew that it was happening on all the other plantations around them. And, and I told you earlier, Thomas Jefferson really bugs me. Yes. He really, he really drives me nuts. And I think I was thinking about that more. And I think part of it is because he did, he did espouse slavery even more poetically and fervently than Washington did. Mm -hmm. So it almost seems like him being unwilling to let his slaves go into freedom is even more frustrating because it seems even more hypocritical. Like he knew and, a lot better and you know wanted to be revered for knowing better. Right. Yet he still kept all of his, he still kept his slaves. And there was even this, uh, I forget his name, some, some Polish aristocrat who also came to help, uh, the, what would be the Americans in, in the Revolutionary War, he offered to buy all of Jefferson's slaves. Like, I'll buy them out. You can mm -hmm. let yourself go of this. I'll pay you for the difference, and then they can all be free. And George Washington, I keep saying George Washington, Je <laughs> Jefferson it's, turned it's him down. It's a topic of our podcast. Makes sense. Yeah, he um, Jefferson turned the offer down. It's like, why? Yeah. You know, why would you turn down that opportunity if you really believe that slavery was bad? And here's a guy offering you a truck ton of money to make your political, you know, your moral stance against yeah. it in reality. He's still turning it down. And um, so one of the things that that helped me be less angry at Jefferson in some ways <laughs> was that, <laughs> you know, we all have our, our beliefs and we recognize our problems with participating in certain parts of our culture and things in this world like eating too many animal products or buying clothes from Old Navy yeah. in sweatshops, yet we all still do it. It's like not everybody can live up 100% to the moral things they espouse because we're all human and we're not perfect. Mm -hmm. This one seems like a big one, though, TJ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? he, uh, there was a... As you said, not everyone can afford to shop at not Old Navy in other places or um, to, you know, eat. Well, they can probably afford to eat less animal products. But, you know, at the same time, there is some stuff where it's not as cost effective. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he, he had an opportunity to uh, not only Maybe. just move on, but then to have money to be completely free to keep doing all the same crap he liked doing and went yeah. eh. was there any yeah. reasoning offered that you've read about as to why he turned it down or just because that was what he was comfortable with i i i don't know for sure i didn't come in uh, come across anything like that i could i could see some of it being like pride mm -hmm. you know wealth um still is so important in some ways and some people would rather continue to be in what they are instead of uh taking charity i guess i don't i don't it, that's not really charity but do you know the point i'm trying to yeah make? he'd rather just stick with his debts and his slaves than just let some polish guy let him out of all of his problems do you think perhaps part of that was a political calculation Knowing that, because this was before his president, correct? Yes, it was. And so he would have been like, well, 
I don't want to give Virginians and the like the southern states, as it were, mm-hmm. cause to vote against me because I, mm-hmm. you know, change my way of life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole electoral college, which selected the president mm-hmm. at that time, was based around a compromise and the three fifths clause yep. to make the southern states have more sway in electing the executive at the time. So, political calculus is probably part of it. I don't think you're wrong in assuming that or, or suggesting that at all. Because he was a very political person. Yes. He was always a politician. Ambitious, poli- mm-hmm. yeah, politically in, uh, driven, all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like with him, too, to compare him to Washington, I don't feel like as many of the myths around Washington were maybe as self perpetuated as the ones around Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Go ahead. If you've got more to say on that, please. I think that's mostly it. Just thinking about the, like, um, well, and Jefferson fancied himself also a man of science, mm, that he had all these brilliant scientific ideas, which he may have. I think he just was more of a fan and liked. He, he just liked to learn. Yes. He liked learning a lot. He was definitely a man of the enlightenment era. And he wasn't religious. I don't think either of them were super religious, uh, but I think Washington definitely practiced more. Um, but Jefferson gets all the credit for the uh, separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I, I think that's a good point, too. I think it's misunderstood because, uh, at least according to people like Christopher Hitchens, which, you know, take it or leave it, uh, it wasn't that Jefferson was necessarily, you know, an atheist or agnostic, he may have been a little bit more antagonistic towards mm-hmm. the idea of religion. So separation of church and state may have been more of a way to neuter that from coming into government. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, speaking of things being glossed over in people's legacies, I feel like that's one of them. Yeah, there's a lot more nuance to it than you would think at this point. <laughs> and, nuance? I mean, What's that? I know, shocking. Um... And I haven't thought about it too much, but there are some little things in Chernow's biography talking about this is probably the first time George Washington met a Jewish person, or he showed a lot of respect for the Native Americans during the French and Indian War. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these these guys were some of the few people at the time that really traveled, that moved around, um, that met different types of people. Like if you didn't live in a big harbor city like New York City at the time, you wouldn't know anybody except all the people that lived right near your farm and that went mm-hmm. to your same church and so they were probably you know just personally exposed to different religions and lines of thinking in ways that most people weren't at the time and so mm-hmm. maybe that's why they were more like hmm, maybe it's not at all it's cracked up to be and it's okay for people to be different my recollection too from Chernow's book is that he kind of showed up to his first meeting with uh, Native Americans thinking that he'd heard certain things about them and was expecting that to happen when, huh, it didn't. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. They act like they're almost human, too. Whoa. That's right. And they, uh, they're they willing to help if you treat them respectfully. What What's going on here? Like, they're willing to... Because like, I think he thought... Didn't he say at one point, like, he thought they were greedy and just kind of out for money? When it yeah. was like, no, if you're... They just want to keep living and doing the same things we do. Hmm, interesting. Right. 
Well, and even Jefferson was kind of like that. He, you know, at least suggested in some capacity that the Native American uh, tribes and leaders should be treated with respect mm-hmm. and that we should honor our treaties and we should take into consideration, you know, their lives too. And then, you know, since we brought him up earlier, you know, then Jackson comes along and he's like, fuck that. Like, yep. <laughs> totally different attitude. Oh, we're going to have a fun episode of him, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, I think we will. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it, let's think about Jefferson, too, just as, like, a political savior in a lot of ways. I mean, he's got his own monument in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., too. Um, he's on some money. You know, it's... But I really only have ever considered him as the, you know, allegedly the writer of the Declaration yep. of Independence. So, what else about him do you think is mythologized and over, like you said, either glossed over or like over highlighted for him? It's easier for me to see Washington as this early political savior than it is for me to see Jefferson such as that. I feel like with Jefferson, a lot of the influence that should be attributed to Madison is -hmm. somehow moved to Jefferson instead. Like I feel like, Unless you're someone who is, whether you're a student of history or political science or someone who has actually studied the Constitution, mm-hmm. you understand the relevance and the influence that Madison had. And they were like BFS, too. Yes. They were super close. That's mm-hmm. a really good point, actually. And I think, especially, I think they were more of not just like academic kind of. Mm-hmm. contemporaries but mm-hmm. um i was just thinking about this the other day this in, in a weird context for what's happening right now you know back in like 2008 2009 there was this whole evangelism around counterinsurgency theory which petraeus at the time was kind of the kingpin but there were a bunch of people around that were kind of in the same thing and i feel like that's kind of the same relationship that Jefferson and Madison had, except where Jefferson, I think, gets a lot more credit for these writings, and Madison doesn't. Mm. Je- I'm, this is a weird thing to say, but Jefferson's way sexier than Madison is. <laughs> I <laughs> don't know sense. much about Madison than his writings. Like, I, he, he was, was a lot shorter, really wasn't short. he? Yes, he was, <laughs> he was a lot short. Uh, TJ, Thomas Jefferson was six foot something, so oh, was George okay. Washington. They were both very tall men. Yes, so because being over six foot at that time is very tall. Absolutely. Very rare. It's like mm-hmm. you were born to lead men because they could see you because you were tall and you must be healthy and strong and whatever. Mm-hmm. Madison was very short. He was also very sickly. Um, it seems like he was very prone to bouts of anxiety as well. He was a very nervous, quiet person. Whereas uh, Thomas Jefferson, being a lawyer and a politician, was, you know... He could be looked upon in a very different way. And he wrote well. That's where I and think uh, well. Madison, while he did write well, wrote well mm-hmm. for scholars and people who were yeah. interested in those writings. As where Jefferson right. found a way, as you said, to cross it over. It makes me think of uh, like stand-up comedians who not necessarily be the best writers, but had the best uh-huh. delivery. And I, well, Jefferson obviously was bright as well, but like he found uh-huh. a way to mix that together as I think where Madison was a bit more he could do the comedy writing but he needs somebody else to make it more palatable. <laughs> right. <laughs> he needs someone to present it. There you uh, go. 
to perform it better. Or as uh, Patton Oswalt would say, a punch-up guy. <laughs> punch-up guy. Like so that. I got the script. It's really good. Let's listen to punch it up a little bit. Well, and that makes sense then that Madison was his follower. Madison mm-hmm. was uh, the, the fourth president. Jefferson was the third. Mm-hmm. Adams the second, one term, <laughs> which pissed him off to no end. He was a very grouchy guy. He was. I was like, I don't think Paul Giamatti played him grouchy enough. Honestly. It's true. It's like an HBO show. And if you have not watched that, like he's very grouchy. He like, is. Nothing's ever enough for him. Like he, to talking about uh, Washington, thinking that people should do as they say and say what they do. Adams felt that Washington stabbed him in the back. Absolutely. He was one of the few people to say, I don't know about this Washington guy. Like, what the hell are you talking about? He's the best guy here, you know? He uh, he kind of stood out in that sense. So, he did. Um, and also, uh, speaking of short people, that was Adams. <laughs> Adams was also short. He was kind of chunky. He's short, a chunk monkey. Short yeah. and round. Rotund, short and round. <laughs> he was. And so he's bookended by these two tall, handsome guys that were known for loving the ladies and being good dancers of, uh, you know, the genteel South. And yep. he's this grouchy little lawyer from Boston, you know. But I guess at least uh, Adams had a son who became president. Which, he did. Um, for those he of was you incredibly that... hard on him, too. Like, yes. the writings to his son are like, if you don't become president, too... You're a worthless piece of shit to me. Like that, the the the, the early nineteenth century version of that. He's incredibly hard on yes. Quincy Adams. You, like you don't deserve to be my namesake. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Well, I think about too in the context of John Adams, John Quincy Adams is. Uh, it was, I believe, Glenn Beck asking, or Sean Hanley for that matter, asking Sarah Palin, or this is how it all runs together now. Uh-oh. Or uh, Michelle Bachman, which founding father she valued the most, and like who who also was against slavery, and she said, "Well, John Quincy Adams, who would have been a very small boy at that time, but was somehow a contemporary of the founding fathers." <laughs> That's very interesting. Yes. It's it's like, did she recently see Amistad or something? <laughs> right before she just asked that question and just kind of conflated the two. Who knows with that crowd? Yeah, no kidding. That's wild. Yeah, but yeah. I'm actually going to see if I can pull up everyone's pictures from Washington. You should. You should. They're very interesting. There was, um, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, talk in Chernow's biography, too, about the portraits of Washington done and how some were probably more accurate than others. And what these guys looked like did matter. I mean, we didn't have mass media at the time, but appearances were very important back then, too. Which makes the, uh, I mean, we understand why the current president wants to be displayed as strong, but he just in general looks ridiculous, so I don't know why mm-hmm. he's doing that. Uh, I was trying to find a chron- chronological thing. Well, let's move on from this before we get too sidetracked. Okay. okay but yeah, that's that's a good point, too. Oh, there he is. It's Madison. Yes. Yeah. In this picture, I think they made him look a little too healthy. <laughs> Possibly. Very, uh, you know, the pink cheeks, which... 
mm-hmm. you said, he was not known for being the... Healthy guy? Yes. Oh, this other one, he looks... Whoa. Okay. This is a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> what did you find? What did you stumble across? I just Googled presidential portraits. Oh, dear. So there's a mixture of actual portraits plus uh, comic ones. Uh, oh, comedic yeah. ones. Yeah, sure. Well, in Madison, you know, the guy, he, he is the one to credit with writing the Constitution mm-hmm. for the most part. What he presented was called the Virginia Plan. But he, all the components were there, the three branches of government and how they were supposed to work for and against each other. That was his thinking. And uh, by him, for timing... Um, the War of 1812 happened when he was president, and Washington, D.C. was burnt to the ground, so yep. not so. much to recover from for that. <laughs> no, and, uh, oh, just the whole idea of you know, the Federalist Papers versus the, like, anti-Federalist people, mm. and how bizarre it is that the people who have, in a sense, some of the greatest regard for our Federalism... And such as publications like The Federalist espouse <laughs> the same ideas put forth by anti-federalists during yeah. the... <laughs> yeah. You know, just like, okay, so in our lifetime, our government overreach and deficit has exploded mm-hmm. under the allegedly conservative uh, let's reel it in politician. Indeed. And, and then the the anti-federalists were the ones that kind of blew it out of the water back in the yep. day, too. Like, oh, we don't want a strong central government, but we're going to do the Louisiana Purchase, and nobody can stop me, you know? <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> let me just uh, go way outside what's written in the Constitution, and we're going to do implied powers like nobody's watching. But, you know, since, of course, uh, we like more land, like buying Greenland and shit, um, <laughs> we'll overlook <laughs> That's that. Right. That's right. By Greenland, I forgot. <laughs> well, there so, you go. Let's, uh, crap. I was thinking about this today as far as good thing of the week. Uh-huh. And I don't feel I have one that's like, again, wasn't a bad week. Nothing to complain about. Sure. But, like, all my stuff is, like, extremely, like, my good stuff is all extremely work related and, like, just kind of <laughs> very specific. And uh-huh. <laughs> I was telling some friends of mine, like, just, like, more, like, you know, social media friends that, like, we talk a lot, but I don't really know them all that well. Sure. And whenever I talk, we're like, what in the hell do you do? And <laughs> one of them brought up, like, I feel like this is, like, a TV show. It's like, oh, like, I tell you about my TPS reports. And she just started laughing. She's like, what's that from? Like, yeah, I, I understand, like, yeah. just the stuff I mentioned, it's all very large corporate America and stuff like that. And, yeah. To those of people outside of my company, it means nothing else for me. It's like, this is how we sure. talk all day. Okay. So uh, I'm going to let you go first while I sure. try and think of something that's not so weird and hard to understand. <laughs> so uh, mine's going to be very simple and very just at-home related. I have made a new dish that my whole family enjoys, which is anybody out there with any type of relatives knows that that, that can be hard to do. Mm-hmm. Make, some, make a new dinner that everybody likes. Yeah. And it's stolen from a HelloFresh recipe. And it's just, uh, I'm going to say it wrong probably, beef bulgogi, oh, which right. is like, yeah, with a Korean barbecue sauce on it. And 
Everybody loves it. And I'm going to call that a win. That's my win for this week is a new dinner. Yeah. I think mine and uh, note here, we're not being paid for it. But uh-huh. Michelle, as I told you about, like I've been looking forward to season two of The Boys coming out. Oh yeah! I first yes. saw it. it was supposed to drop on September fourth. Last about this time last year, I saw the ads for it while I was just like watching something on YouTube. I was like, this doesn't look very good. Like I don't know what this is supposed <laughs> to be. Like it's one actor screaming at somebody else, and like at one point, a superhero like punches somebody across town. It's like, what am I looking at here? And then I watched it, like, whoa. I mean, it's just, it's so well done, and Michelle's told you this, it's not subtle at all. It's a very punch in your face as to what they're trying to get at. Sure. And I think uh, my mom maybe started watching the first season, which is odd, because it's definitely an R-rated television kind of show. Yeah. Uh, so season yeah. two is out now, and uh, I'm going to watch it at some point, I just, I know myself, and what, maybe two years ago, when you and I were supposed to be doing, like, episodes, or like I was supposed to be editing stuff, I binged <laughs> on Game of Thrones, so I'm uh... trying to control that more, where it's like, I know I want to watch this, but I also know how I'm going to, I know myself, yes. and I know what's going to happen, so Fair that's enough. my uh, good thing right now, although it was, it was a good week, um, I'll be happier, you know, whenever we can actually go back out again and hug people, but still. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good. Those are good things. For sure. And uh, I don't eat beef anymore, but bulgogi, brokogi, either way you pronounce it, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Michelle. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) I made it for uh, my brother as well with using Beyond Beef, so Mm, it's not pretty good that way to do. So there you go. That's a good substitute. (laughs) Okay. All right. Thanks, Noel. Thanks, Michelle.